You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our text for this morning is Psalm 77. If, If you have a Bible near you, feel free to grab it and turn to Psalm 77. Hear hear this psalm from Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, ago. I said, let me remember my songs in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and it shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Now, O Lord, in this moment, sanctify our hearts and our minds. Let our thoughts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And show us the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, The French philosopher and novelist Albert Camus was uh, just a little boy during the First World War. But as an adult, he saw the horrors of the Second World War up close and personal. The Second World War, like the first, had shaken the Western world to its very core. Camus himself participated in, in the French resistance in Paris as it sought to disrupt the Nazi machine. So he saw the challenges up close and personal. And in the wake of these two great wars, um, we observe the breakdown of the moral and the spiritual traditions of Europe and of really much of the Western world. Camus himself, on the far side of these events, embraced a philosophical pessimism. Humanity and this sort of idea must come to terms with the absurdities of the universe, Camus believed. We're just cogs in a cosmic wheel. The universe has us in its grip and it's, a, and it's a grip of indifference. And the best that we can do in the face of this indifference is dampen humanity's pain and misery. Uh, Camus had, had a hero from Greek mythology, a god named Sisyphus. Every day, old Sisyphus would, would push a large boulder to the top of a mountain only to have the boulder roll back down to the bottom at the day's end. 
And then the next morning, there goes Sisyphus again, pushing that boulder up the mountain, only to see it roll down once more. And on it goes every day, forever and ever. But Sisyphus refuses to leap off the top of the mountain because he accepted the absurdity of the universe and his place in it. Humanity, according to Camus, is like Sisyphus at its best. Only the immature and the naive can hope for a different future. We're all consigned to the absurdity of it all. I thought I'd share some cheery stuff here in this season of the pandemic. I discovered last week, to my surprise, that that a group of Dominican monks invited Albert Camus to speak to them in 1948. The topic they asked Camus to deliver was entitled, What Do Unbelievers Expect from Christians? I was really intrigued by this. What would Camus, the, the pessimist atheist, say to a group of Dominican monks? It's a fascinating lecture. Camus boldly declares to the monks that he possesses no absolute truth or message. Therefore, he could never declare Christian, Christian truth as illusory or false. He even goes so far as to recall a recent debate that he had had with the French novelist Francois Mauriac, a devout Christian. Camus declared in front of all these monks that Mauriac got the better of him in the debate over Christian faith and that he was still thinking about what Mauriac had said. Still, Camus defines his pessimism before the monks as a pessimism about the future. The best we can do, he tells these monks. Um, as we roll the boulder to the top of the mountain, is to join hands in the alleviation of the suffering of women and children. Let's help some people out in the midst of our meaningless existence, Camus tells the monks. Admittedly, this is heavy stuff, and the ideas of Camus are not to be taken lightly. They live with us today. On the far side of the, this pandemic moment we're in, don't be surprised when more people adhere to this particular view of human existence. For whatever reason, and I'm sure there are many, I grow in my appreciation for the Bible's realism as I age. The Bible does not turn a blind eye to, this worldly, to the worldly challenges that fueled Camus' pessimism. The kind of realism that one finds in the Bible insists that to follow after the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, is not to escape life and its challenges, yes, even its absurdities, but to live into them, to face them, to turn toward the dark clouds rather than away from them. The Bible doesn't like airbrushed pictures where wrinkles are smoothed out and double chins are removed. Humanity's fallen and broken by sin's malignant presence, and so too is our world with its viruses and its violence. This is the fallen world we inhabit, that our children inhabit, and should the Lord tarry, our great-grandchildren too. The Psalms remain, in my mind, one of God's greatest gifts to His people. They are a navigation tool, a compass through the realism of our lives and a guide toward our ultimate reason for existence, a life lived with God and for God. I'm stunned by the Psalms, truth be told, and the tensions that the Psalms hold together. They are honest and they are hopeful at the same time. John Calvin called the Psalms a lesson in the anatomy of all of our souls. They're a deep dive into what it means for us to exist. Why are we? 
Whose are we? For what purpose are we? To what end? In them, in these psalms, we hear King David sing. We see him praise. We see King David dance. And in the same psalms, we see King David weep and confess and lament. Heaven and hell, Martin Luther tells us, are both found in the psalms. And it's no overstatement to say that the riches and the depths of the psalms are inexhaustible. One psalmist in particular would have seen part of himself in Albert Camus. Not not the whole, but at least in part. He saw what appeared on the surface as the absurdity of it all. Asaph was no stranger to the world. He was no stranger to God. In fact, Asaph was a professional priest from the tribe of Levi. To put it indelicately, God was his business. God was what Asaph did for a living. In Psalm 73, we hear Asaph declare that his life of devotion to God appeared to be futile. He couldn't work things out in a clear and tight picture when he struggled through the tensions of his faith and his experience. What he believed to be true and then, and then what he saw with his eyes, they didn't come together neatly for Asaph. And in the end of Psalm 73, we find Asaph clinging to God and refusing to let go. What do I have in heaven or earth beside you, O God, he confesses. And Psalm 77 is another Asaph psalm. I'll admit to you this afternoon that I'm a moving target when it comes to, quote, my favorite portions of the Bible. But over this past year, I've probably returned to Psalm 77 more than any other psalm. Asaph is unnervingly honest about himself and God and the realities of the world around him. You see, if you have the psalm in front of you, the first three verses. In these verses of Psalm 77, we're given no indication about the external, if I can use this term, trigger for Asaph's internal distress. What caused Asaph to be in the state that he's in now? And we simply do not know. We just find Asaph in distress, crying out to God. I think this in and of itself is is worth noting. Whatever the external circumstances were, Asaph recognizes that his real struggle is before God and is with God. This is the kind of realism that I was talking about earlier that the Bible just forces us into. I cry to God and he will answer. In the day of trouble, where do we turn? Naturally, we turn to God. Where else would we go? But Asaph, when he turns to God in these first three verses, finds no comfort. In fact, he says something that I think is really disturbing. I call out to God and I moan. When I meditate, presumably on God again, I grow faint. God has become a stranger to this priest, to Asaph. In the next uh, six verses, in verses 4 through 9, Asaph's picture of his struggle with God becomes more adversarial. Not only is God not comforting me, he now appears to be coming after me. You hold my eyelids open. And if you follow these verses and read them, it appears as if Asaph's thoughts are racing. I cannot speak, so I'll think. I'll meditate. I'll recall my evening prayers and songs, but the meditations that he enters into lead to a stunning series of questions. Remember that these questions that I'm about to read are in the Bible. 
And this is what Asaph says on the far side of his coming to terms with his his own thoughts. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? When you compare these questions, honest and forthright as they are, to Psalm 136, for example, the differences couldn't be more stark. Listen to the first three verses of Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Response, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And on and on it goes in Psalm 136 for 26 long verses. For his steadfast love endures forever. And here's Asaph, the temple priest who knows God's word, and he sings God's songs, and he serves God for a living, and he's asking the unthinkable. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has God forgotten his own promises? Does his steadfast love endure forever? The force of these questions land very hard. John Calvin, who I mentioned earlier, was no stranger to the challenges of this world and its suffering. He he writes a letter uh, to a friend once. There's a copy of this letter that's in circulation describing a weekend bout that Calvin had with kidney stones and hemorrhoids. The content of that letter is enough to bring any grown man to his knees in fear. I shudder to think about it. But listen to what John Calvin, this sort of interesting figure of the faith, has to say about Christians and cross-bearing. This is what he says. At present, there are among among Christians modern Stoics who think that it's wrong to groan and to weep and even to grieve in loneliness. Such wild opinions generally come forth from people who are more dreamers than practical persons and who therefore cannot produce anything but fantasies. Calvin continues by pointing us to Jesus. For Jesus himself, Calvin tells us, mourned and he wept for his own calamities as well as for those of others. And he did not teach his disciples any different way. In the last 10 verses or 11 verses of Psalm 77, We see that the Bible creates all kinds of space for Christians to grieve and to express their disorientation in the midst of loss. And I think this is where Albert Camus comes along and he says, exactly, I told you so. But Asaph, the Levite priest, says, wait, there's more. I'm not offering you an escape from earth's troubles, Asaph says. But I want you to remember who your God is. Put more in terms of Psalm 77, Asaph says, I want to remember who God is. I want to remember what God has done, his mighty actions. I will recall to remembrance the mighty deeds of the Lord, your wonders of old. My world right now, Asaph is in intent saying, my world right now seems knocked off of its axis, but I can still recall the mighty saving acts of God in the past. They can offer me current hope in my moment now. What kind of God is like our God, Asaph says in these last 11 verses? 
He works wonders. The current moment that we're in cannot envelop the being of God. My current circumstances cannot overwhelm what God has done for us in the past. And what has he done? Asaph's very clear about this in these last 11 verses. What has God done in the past? He has saved us. He's redeemed us. You with your arms, says Asaph, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. I'm going to tell myself again and again that God has redeemed us, that God has saved us. We pray it all the time in our congregation here at the Advent. We can't pray it enough. I bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. I love these 11 verses in Psalm 77. Because Asaph doesn't just recount the saving deeds of God like a schoolchild running through his multiplication tables. Yes, this and then that, three times three, three times three. Times three. He does it in song. He does it in poetry. He repeats God's actions from the past with the explosion of his own affections. This is no dry retelling of what God did for Israel and Egypt so long ago. And this retelling is one of my favorites in all of the Bible. Listen to what it says here in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Now we know what it says in Exodus. Moses came to the Red Sea. He set the people to the side. He placed his staff in the waters, and an east wind came and blew the water into walls with dry land in between. That's pretty good stuff, too. I love how Asaph describes it. When the waters saw you coming, O God, they ran in fear. They stiffen to attention. I think it's just fantastic. You, God, led your people to safety like a shepherd leads his flock. My father told me the story of your saving deeds. His father told him, and on and all through, on through the generations, I will remember what you have done in the past so I can participate right now in their saving effects today. Last night, a, a member of our parish called to check in on our family and to pray with us over the phone. And we chatted for a while, we swapped stories, and offered updates on the new new of our domestic lives. The conversation wasn't long, but it was very meaningful. Before we hung up, she prayed with me. And in her prayers, she earnestly asked the Lord that we would all be changed during this season transformed to a renewed sense of loving God and loving our neighbor. Her prayer meant and it means a great deal to us, to our family. The truth be told, and you may feel similarly, I want this thing over. Even though the concentrated time with family has been this cloud's silver lining, I'm still the best wiffle ball player in our house. I hope you're watching, boys. But I'm an academic by nature who lives in the rhythmic seasons and cycles of the academic calendar. I find comfort in those rhythms and the stability of those rhythms. Not to be trivial, I miss baseball and I want it back. I miss the kneelers in our church and being here with you. I can't process what's going on in Italy, in New York City, in New Orleans, and in our own city. We should all be praying for this thing to pass and for lives to be saved 
and order restored. But I'm so thankful that my friend last night prayed with me. And I want to extend her prayers for you today. Let us pray that this moment not be lost to us and what it has to teach us. Even if we're with Asaph, awake at night and afraid, dear God, let the sense of, our gra- of gratitude for the good gifts of this life grow deeper and richer. They're your good gifts, O oh God. They're never our possessions. And God, let us learn with Asaph that these things can be lost or changed in an eye's blink. We thank you for them, Lord, but we cannot rely upon them. And they certainly offer us no eternal stability. Let us never forget it, dear Lord. Because even though life may be unstable, you are not. Who is a God like our God? He has done wondrous things. He's redeemed us and holds our lives in his hands, safe and secure in the life-giving blood of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.